Uh, this morning we are continuing our series, uh, Yesterday, Today, and Forever, looking at the, the character of God throughout the Bible and how he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And last week, Pastor Dustin walked us through the creation narrative and uh, the significance of our being made in God's image and Jesus' ability to recreate us. And today we come to the story of Noah, and if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to Genesis 6. You can read along with us. Uh, We'll read the beginning of Noah's story and the end of Noah's story. So we're going to start at chapter 6, Genesis 6, starting verses 5 to 8. Uh, And then we'll skip over to chapter 9. Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We'll skip over to chapter 9. There's some minor details, a worldwide flood, every living thing except for what's in the ark dies. Chapter 9, starting at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I will now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants, and after you, Uh, after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Um, And after this, God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my bow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the sky, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the bow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we we read through the Old Testament, we can get a picture of God that we often don't agree with or don't even like to look at sometimes, or maybe we're just unwilling to acknowledge it. But it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, right? When we read some of the stories from the Old Testament where, where God floods the earth, where he kills everything that was living, uh, where, where he sent his people to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, where God eradicated nations as he told them to enter the promised land, where, where he sent plagues and, and diseases among his own people even at times. And we don't really want to hear about that, or at least we don't want to acknowledge it and recognize that this is the same God who punished these evil things in the past as who sent his son later to die for our sins, right? But there's, there's a beauty about this wrath of God. There's, there's something unique and incredible about it as well. And about God's absolute love and desire for justice to happen on the earth. 
So um, today I want to look at three, and three characteristics of God that might seem like very simple truths. Uh, I want to bring it to a simple place so that we can actually acknowledge it and understand it and come to that place as well. Uh, so it might seem obvious at first, but as we unpack it, it'll make a little more sense. Uh, so the three characteristics of God I want to look at today is that first, God is unfathomably opposed to evil. Uh, the second is that God deeply cares for all of his people. And the third is that God loves his creation. Again, maybe very simple truths, but I want to unpack them for us to understand. Uh, and as, as, we, as we look at each of these characteristics, they tell us uh, something about how we are supposed to live in this world in relation to who God is. So uh, the, the first point, God is unfathomably opposed to evil. Uh, the, the beginning of Noah's story is kind of a somber one. Uh, we, we read uh, the beginning of Genesis, the creation of mankind, the good the truth and the beauty with, made, which, with which God made the world. And it was corrupted by man. Adam and Eve sinned. And since then, it was getting worse and worse and worse until the time of Noah, where we come to a place where it says that the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. This once, once perfect place that was filled with beauty, of, of truth, of goodness, was now tainted in such a way that the only shred of goodness left was in this one man named Noah. And, and there was no aspect of humanity that was not corrupted by sin at this point. And so when God looked down and he saw all these things happening, how did he respond? It says in Genesis 6 that he was grieved, that it caused him pain. Some translations say that God was sorry or that he repented, which I think is a little more accurate. Um, our, our understanding of repentance usually means the understanding that we've sinned. Repentance just simply means to turn, uh, to make a different choice. And it wasn't that God sinned. It wasn't that, that he made a mistake or this, or, or God repented, which, again, doesn't mean that he did sin or had to change his mind within this. He, he wanted it to be different. God saw the amount of evil in the world, and he... He longed for it to be like it once was. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't that creation was out of God's control. It wasn't that it had gone off in a direction that he couldn't save it from. And it wasn't that once he created it, they were unable to fulfill the, the purpose with which God created them. God knows everything, right? From beginning to end, even after Adam and Eve sinned, we have the promise of a coming Messiah, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. So what do we see here? What do we learn about God's character in this? Uh, we see that his creation affects him. We see that he cares so deeply and intimately for us, for mankind, that it burdens and grieves him to see it when it's broken. God wasn't surprised that his creation had, had committed all these evil acts. It didn't catch him off guard, but it did pain him. It did cause him grief. And when we look at the world today, it's still filled with pain. Nothing's changed. It was, it was less than 100 years ago that millions of people died brutal deaths because of the evil that was in the world. Even, even today, we can tell it's broken. The, the abortion and suicide rates are rising. The fact that nations are led by evil, corrupt leaders, uh, even, even churches are standing against one another. We see that the world is broken. We feel it. We connect with that pain. And we are pained. We hurt along with the world. But the extent to which we grieve the broken estate of the world is, is not even comparable to the sorrow that God feels for the brokenness. We've all been injured by evil, but, 
But being broken humans, we can't understand how much that pains God. In verse 6, like I said, it says that God's heart was filled with pain when he saw how evil mankind had become. And, and so he did what we would consider unfathomable, right? He flooded the earth. He, he destroyed mankind at the time, with the exception of what was on the ark. The God who offered and who would later offer his son as the payment for our brokenness at this point in time chose to carry out his wrath in this way. We can call it unfair. We can, we can think that maybe we even would have been more gracious than God himself. We at that time would have showed more mercy than him, but we don't know that. We're not God. We're not in control of all of this. We, we gain a better understanding of God if we are willing to look past our own ability to see what's fair and what's unfair. We don't have the whole picture. We don't know what it was like, the evil at that time. We're not God. But we do see that only great love comes from great wrath. And this is, this is a truth in the world that we experience as well. But great love comes from great wrath. The great wrath, uh, let's say, of an alcoholic comes from the love that they have for their addiction. Or sometimes the great wrath of a proud person, um, is, is the, their abuse is because they love themselves. Wrath comes from a great sense of passion in a in a, in a certain way. And so God's wrath is based in his love for us. It's, it's, it's like meeting a bear in the woods. Uh, the only thing scarier than meeting a bear when you're out hiking is meeting like little cubs. And it's not because they're more dangerous, they're really cute. Uh, but a mother bear can be incredibly protective, right? Uh, uh, and if the bear senses that her cubs are in trouble, she's willing to defend those cubs even to death to protect them because she loves them, because she cares for them. Right? The, the greatness of her ferocity is fed by the love that she has for her children. Yes, God is opposed to evil. Yes, he, he, he longs to see it different, longs to change it, but only because he's a God of great love, only because he's one who can't stand to see the broken state of the world, one who longs to rid it of all mourning and death and pain and sorrow, one who feels the pain along with us. He's not an unfeeling God watching over us suffer. And if you think that God overlooks the brokenness of this world, if you think that he overlooks the state that you are currently in or the things that you've experienced, then you don't see God in reality. You don't understand who he truly is. God cares too much for us to let us continue in our evil ways. And at times he does take drastic measures which to us seem unfathomable, but it's because, again, we don't have the whole picture. We don't understand everything. He, he sacrifices his own child so that we could have a relationship with him. If we, if we actually understand that, isn't that kind of insane? Isn't that kind of a, a ridiculous type of love? It gives us a better perspective of our own sin when we recognize how opposed to evil God truly is, though. Instead of facing the ugliness of our sin, usually we try to mask it. We'll cover it up. We'll, we'll lie about it. We'll even blame it on other people at times. But when we, when we are willing to accept and see how opposed to evil God truly is, then we can recognize this brokenness within us, and it leads us to a godly type of sorrow for our own sin that actually brings us closer to him. 
In, uh, in, in Corinthians, Paul says it like this, the godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings death. When we, when we understand and grasp how opposed to evil God truly is, it leads us to salvation with no regrets. It gives us hope, in fact, because he cares for us, because he loves us. We can live with no regrets. So that's, that's the first aspect of God's, of God's character that I want to look at, that he is unfathomably opposed to evil, and that allows us to recognize as well this great amount of evil within the world and turn to him. Uh, so second from the story, we see in God's character a deep care for all of his people. Um, in, in Genesis 6, we read that God was going to flood the earth because every part of man's heart was evil, only evil all the time. It's kind of a very depressing verse to read, especially at the beginning of the creation of the world. Um, And in Genesis 8, after Noah and his family had come off of the ark, after God had flooded the entire earth, this is what God says to Noah. He says, never, oh, sorry, the Lord smelled the, the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice that Noah had made and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, right? Nothing changed. There was no difference made, the flood or not. Man was still evil. Man was still turned towards their evil ways. Every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. That didn't change. The flood, it would have been great if it eradicated evil from the earth, but it didn't. Just because one generation passed away doesn't mean that evil itself was taken away. So the world was going to carry on after this disaster in the same way that it did before. And it's going to, in fact, return to it. So what changed? What, why would God allow such a thing to happen? Or, or wouldn't it make sense that if God took such drastic measures at one point in time for, for such great evil, that he would do the same thing again? That he would maybe not make the same promise to withhold from flooding, but to burn it, to, to do other things? The turning point was Noah's sacrifice, though. After, after Noah had come out of the ark along with his family, he offered a sacrifice to God um, in, in, in thanks for, for bringing him life, for bringing his family life. Uh, Spurgeon, uh, a famous preacher, says it like this, Without a sacrifice, sin clamors for vengeance, and God sends a destroying flood. But the sacrifice presented by Noah was typical of the coming sacrifice of God's only begotten Son and of the effectual atonement therein provided for human sin. You see, God's wrath for sin wasn't any less after the flood. He hates your and my sin just as much as he did their sin of that time. It's no different. But the direction of his wrath is now different. That's what changed. After Noah made the sacrifice to God, we read the covenant that God made with his people. And actually, he made it with all the earth, and I'll explain that why that's there in a little bit here, but God said, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off from the waters of a flood or by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever the bow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Every time that we see God enter into a covenant with mankind, so the, 
uh, the Adamic covenant, the one he made with Adam and Eve, the one he made with Noah here, the one he makes with Abraham, uh, the new covenant. Every covenant that God enters into with humanity goes something like this. You're in trouble because of your brokenness and sin, and I am going to save you. I'm going to enter into a covenant with you and be your savior. Now, God's view of sin and, and of evil, like I said, didn't change after the flood. Like I said, the direction of his wrath changed. And, and the rainbow shows us the backdrop for God's grace. We, we, we must see our sin in order to see and understand his grace. We must understand how broken we are in order to understand how loving he is. Because when there's a rainbow, a rainbow only comes at the conjunction of light and darkness. It only comes after a downpour, after we see clouds, after we see darkness, and light breaks through in the middle of that. That's where we see the promise. And when we rightly see our sin as it is, we can rightly see God's love as it is. God has not stopped being the God of wrath and of judgment But instead of pointing his bow towards humanity and sending the arrows of his wrath towards us, he instead pointed it back up towards heaven. And the punishment intended for our sin is now inflicted elsewhere. I love what it says in Isaiah 53. Surely he, Jesus, took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The evil we have done comes at the cost of God's wrath. It comes at the cost of his arrows. And instead of them being directed towards us now, we have hope in Jesus that it's being directed back towards himself. That he chose to point those arrows that were intended for us now at his son. So what does this change for us? We understand that God deeply cares for us, not only enough to save us and transform us and give us life again, but enough to put the punishment that was deserved for us on his own son. How does that change the way we live in this world? I want to argue that it it gives us a greater love for our fellow man, regardless of regardless of our beliefs, regardless of our political stance, regardless of our opinions and the things that we see in this world, it gives us a love for our fellow man. And and as God was making his covenant with Noah and the earth, he said said this to Noah in in chapter 9, verse 5, for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and and from man too, each will I demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God made man. You know, he, he, he encourages Noah in the midst of his covenant with him to recognize the life within each person. And he he draws it back to the creation narrative here. He, He says, in the image of God, God has made man. He reminds Noah of the truth here. So what's God saying? Why does, he, why does he bring it back to that? And I think he, he wants us, like I said, to see the worth that he puts on human life. The world that we're living in nowadays is, is a dog-eat-dog world. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Darwinian world where the strong survive and overpower the weak, and the weak aren't as important as the strong. That's the way the world sees it. But God wants to remind us that every life has worth 
regardless of, of, of actions and characteristics, that every life, whether they're, whether they're Muslim or Jewish or Christian, whether they're a murderer or a doctor, regardless of, of every characteristic or action that, that person has made, that they deserve love, not because of their own actions, but because of the image of God within them. It's not the outcome of a person that gives them worth. It's that they're made in an image so valuable that it can't be changed by the actions that we do. A John, John Calvin, a French theologian, says it like this, and I'll just read you this short excerpt from uh, his writings. He says, Scripture helps in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider that men merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all men, to which we owe all honor and love. Whatever man you meet or who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse to help him. Say he's a stranger, but the Lord has given him a mark that ought to be familiar to you by virtue of the fact that he forbids you to despise your own flesh. You might say he's contemptible and worthless, but the Lord shows him to be one to whom he has designed and given the beauty of his own image. Say that he does not deserve even the least effort for his sake, your least effort for his sake, but the image of God which recommends you to him is worthy of your giving yourself and all your possessions. Now, if he has not only deserved no good at your hand, but has also provoked you by unjust acts and curses, not even this is reason why you should cease to embrace him in love and perform duties of love on his behalf. You will say, he has deserved something very different of me. Yet what has the Lord deserved? While he bids you forgive his, this man for all the sins he has committed against you, he would truly have them charged against himself. Assuredly, there is but one way in which to achieve what is not merely difficult, but what is utterly against our own human nature, to love those who hate us, to repay their evil deeds with benefits, to return blessings for reproaches. It is that we remember not to consider all men's evil intentions, but to look upon the image of God within them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions, and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. God cares deeply for mankind. God loves deeply each one of the people that he has made, which in turn allows us to look past the actions, to look past the opinions and beliefs of a person and to love them as they're created in the image of God. We see a world that is bitterly arguing about opinions, about beliefs, political stances even, and we're not called to participate in that. We're called to love regardless And that's the aspect that God wants us to understand. That, that we, as image bearers of God, can love freely those around us. So that's the, that's the second aspect of God's character I want us to understand from the story of Noah. That he, that he deeply cares all of us, and in turn, that allows us to live a life of love towards those around us, regardless of who they are, what they've done, or what they think. Now, the third aspect of God's character I want to look at is that he loves all of his creation. This one's a little bit of a different point, but if you pay attention to the language here, not only when, when God was punishing the earth, but also in the promise and uh, the, the actual enacted punishment, um, God punishes and restores and, and, and restorations are pointed towards not only man, but the earth and every living creature. 
there's something noticeable here. In, in chapter 6, verse 7 of Genesis, after God decides to flood the earth, he says, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I have grieved that I made them. And when God was establishing his covenant, uh, it, it was also the promise to every living thing. I now establish my covenant with you, your descendants, and every living creature that was with you. Why? Why does God, in this case, establish his covenant with more than just humanity, with the earth itself, in a sense? Why did God include his creation in, in both the punishments and the restoration? Because of our sin, right? Not the sin of the creatures. I don't, I, I, a bird isn't able to think but it was the sin of mankind that exposed the world to brokenness. Sin not only destroys the person, but it destroys the things around us, right? It, unthinking, unloving creatures who didn't know right from wrong were, were caught up in the punishment, again, not because of their sin, but because of ours. Sin destroys a person and has a practical effect upon the earth and the things around us. And Romans 8 says that the whole of creation has been groaning is in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, that it has been subjected to frustration and desires to be liberated from its bondage to decay. Our sin, the things that we do in this world that aren't in line with the purpose that God has created us for, it mars the world, it changes it, 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 it decays it. This has been happening since the beginning of time. But God is committed to renewing the world. God cares intensely for his creation. And we ought to as well. As his humans, we ought to recognize the beauty of the nature he created that points us back towards him. Psalm 19 uh, tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Psalm 96 says that when Christ returns, when he comes back to restore all things, then the earth will be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant in everything in them. Then all of the trees of the forest will sing for joy. What are these psalms saying? Because a tree can't sing as much as a field can be jubilant, right? Uh, since since the beginning of creation, all of God's works have been pointing us towards him by simply being. All, all of his creation has been pointing us back towards God, not by doing anything specifically, but by being themselves. A tree fulfills its purpose in glorifying God by growing roots, by, by spreading out, by branching out, by doing as it was created to do. The, the sea resounds with joy, not because it has vocal cords, uh, but because of the rising and the falling of the tide, where it's obedient to Christ in perfection. It does as it was created to do. Now, we, you and I, are fallen in a way that creation is not. We, we are disobedient, and our brokenness has caused the world to decay. And yet creation continues to be obedient and move and act as God intended it to, which is why creation points us back towards God and why Christians should really have the strongest ecological view out of anyone on this earth, regardless of, of political views, religious views, whatever. 
because creation points us back towards God. When you, when you look at nature, when you see the beauty of a mountain range, when you stand at the edge of the ocean and look out over its grandeur, you can see the beauty of something perfect. And, and we can look to nature and God's creation and say, you are being obedient to God in a way that I am not. I, uh, if you've ever read The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis, it's a, it's a fantastic book, but he, he puts this view of nature like this. We want something in which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty that we see in nature. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that we will get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience to Christ, then they will put on its glory, or rather the greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. Do you see, do you see what Lewis is trying to say here? He, he's saying that when we look to the beauty of nature, when we look to the, to the mountains and the trees and the sea and the flowers, we see something in perfect obedience to Christ, and, and we can long for that. We hope to say, or we, we, we long to say, I hope to catch up with you someday. I hope to be like you in, in glorifying God. If one day we can be as obedient to Jesus as nature is, then we will shine with the glory God intended us to, or rather, the glory that will one day be, because this is just the first sketch. And we can look forward to this now. This is the hope that we have. In this broken world, there's decay, but we still see immense beauty. There is brokenness. Every aspect of, of humanity, of creation, of the earth itself is tainted and broken by sin. But we still catch glimpses of beauty. We still catch glimpses of perfection, of things in obedience to Christ in perfection. Imagine the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth uncorrupted by sin. One day we will praise God along with all of creation. So how, how does this affect us now? How does this understanding that God loves his creation change the way we live now? It should give us, like I said, an ecological view of the world. It should give us an understanding of the world where we desire to take care of it because it points us back towards God. Not that we should rule over it unwisely and, and break things and, and rule over it in a way that's going to destroy and make it worse, but to be good stewards of that which points us back towards God. If, if, if God so loved the world that he was willing to sacrifice his son in order to restore it and to bring it back into perfection one day, then we ought to care for it too. We ought to care for the things that he cares for. God loves his creation. He deeply cares for you and for me. And he is unfathomably opposed to our evil, to the evil in this world, and longs to see it recreated and transformed, which is why he sent Jesus. Because he is like this, we too can see our sin for what it really is and see the worth of every person and treat them with love regardless of how we want to treat them or feel like we ought to treat them sometimes. I want to end with this. We are free to love and steward well with the hope that we too one day will be renewed in glory and will praise our maker alongside all of his creation. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We thank you that you are faithful to restoring your creation. We thank you that all of creation sings praises to you, points us to you. And Father, we thank you that if we withhold those praises, that even the rocks will cry out to you, 
proclaiming your glory and truth. I ask for each one of us that you give us a better understanding of who you are, that you give us a better understanding of how to love those around us, especially when it's difficult and we don't agree with them, or even when they're hurting us, Father. Help us to see your image in man and to love them. And help us to see and respect the beauty in in nature that you've created and to respond and be good stewards of that as well. But Father, we recognize our great need for you. We ask for your help to do this because it's only through you that we can. So Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. In your name.